0: Just to have a couple quick things. After Bob is done, Dr. Murphy is done a little before 5, we're going to have some great pizza outside. And then at 6 in this very room, those of you who are interested in taking the written preliminaries for Saturday's oral exams, and you should be interested in taking the written preliminary for Saturday's oral exams, that will be held in this room from 6 to 6.30. And then you're uh, free to enjoy your evening. It's a nice sunny night, not too hot. Or if you care to, Uh, Lou Rockwell the founder of the Mises Institute and I are going to have a conversation uh, down in the conservatory and a lot of people find Lou a a very interesting character he knows he knows where all the bodies are buried let me say. (laughs) About a year or so ago Bob Murphy and I started discussing a project about money mechanics and it came from a Fed Federal Reserve publication uh, which has been out of print since the 90s which attempts to explain sort of the plumbing behind both central banks and commercial banks and their interplay with fiscal treasury. And it's pretty complicated. And there's sort of a knock on Austrians is that we live in a theoretical world, but we don't much understand how banks actually work. So uh, Bob took on this project and has done an absolutely remarkable job. It's actually on our website, uh, basically complete in form where every chapter is a clickable link. There's a landing page to it. Uh, and we're going to produce it in a written form and uh, pre- distribute that later this year. So not only is he going to the history and origins of money with a lot of Menger and Mises, uh, he goes into the history of the gold standard, uh, again, the plumbing and mechanics behind all of this. But then he has sort of separate treatments of inflation and shadow banking, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, uh, uh, the extraordinary kinds of monetary policy we've seen since the crash of 08, and now hyperdrive since the crash of, well, the engineered uh, deflationary crash of 2020. Uh, he, he discusses MMT, which is obviously a seductive and trendy theory that which is going on right now, uh, cryptocurrencies. So it's really a remarkable short course in money, all in one place, one landing page. And I, And for those of you who have a particular interest in it, I really encourage you uh, to check it out because I think it's going to be a very important product for the Mises Institute. And I'm very, very pleased that uh, Bob was willing and able to do it. so please give him a big round of applause. Thanks, Jeff, for
1: those kind words. And so, yeah, as, as Jeff says, this is available right now. If you know, just Google my name and find it at the Mises Institute website, you'll see it. And he says each chapter is clickable. So what I'm doing in this talk is I thought I would just summarize some of the pertinent points from this um, you know, rather than trying to go ahead and, and give like a summary of each topic. Instead, I just picked a few of them and I'll elaborate somewhat on them. So uh, this is what we're covering in, the, in this talk, US commodity money history, do textbooks get the bank credit creation backwards? Talk a little bit about the Fed's balance sheet. There was a redefinition of M1 that occurred back in the, they retroactively did it. So the, the, where the redefinition kicks in is of May of last year, we'll talk about that. And then they abolished the reserve requirements, right? So those are the things I'll try to cover in this particular talk. But like I say, there's a ton of stuff in that book that you can go to the clickable links and see. Okay. So let me talk about this. So in terms of understanding money mechanics, you know, the, as Jeff said, the original vision was sort of to say, Hey, we've been teaching it a certain way. Does, you know, does the new paradigm affect things? So those new things are in there. But the reason I want to talk about this is there's obviously an affinity in the Austrian tradition with hard money and, you know, commodity money. And me, I would encourage you if you like that stuff, but you've Thought like, oh, wow, there's a lot of history there. And gee, I don't really, you know, the stuff about the silver and bimetallism and all this stuff, it's too complicated. I, I tried to boil it down. So I would say if if that stuff's always interested, you try giving the the chapter I did here uh, a chance, because there is a lot of interesting things in there from a hard money perspective. So for example, And this is something when I was younger, the way I thought it worked was that, oh, the U.S. government always printed green pieces of paper, you know, with presidents on them. And that said a certain number of dollars, but you could just turn those in and then get a certain weight of gold or silver. And actually, that's not eventually that's what it meant. But historically, from when the Constitution, uh, you know, the, the Constitutional Republic, as it were, up through about the Civil War, the U.S. federal government, What they would do is say, you bring us gold or silver and then we'll stamp them into, you know, legal official coins denominated in U.S. dollars. So to be clear, there was one in the War of 1812, specifically it was the year 1815, there there were treasury notes that has a quasi-money status. That was the only exception to this claim, just if you want to be a purist about it. But generally speaking, from, you know, the Constitution up through the Civil War, the you know, the the actual money, the base money in the U.S. were gold and silver coins denominated as dollars. And if you wanted paper notes, it was the banks would issue them. Right. And so what that was technically was a claim on the actual money, which was, you know, the gold or silver coin that, uh, you know, the government had authorized as being legal tender. OK, so that's just to, to give you an example of what I mean. So um, you might see sometimes if you read Rothbard or, you know, Joe Salerno talks a lot about it, that you may think of, oh, the, the gold standard is the government prints pieces of paper and then you can turn them in and get gold based on some, you know, redemption rate the government announces. And I'm saying that's historically the gold standard was, was much stronger. Like they thought of um, the dollar. So the Coinage Act of 1792, for example, the dollar was defined as a certain number of grains of gold or a certain number of grains of silver. All right. So it wasn't that, oh, yeah, we're printing paper dollars and we pledged to redeem them at this rate. It's like, no, what the dollar was, just like to say a a foot was 12 inches. It's not that they said, oh, right now, the exchange rate between inches and dollars is 12 to one. It's like, no, it was it was a much more fundamental thing. They were saying this is what the unit consists of. Okay, so on the one hand, you might say, what's what's the big deal? Why are you stressing this distinction or this nuance? But I'm, I'm just trying to get you to see how the idea that, you know, the money was not a piece of paper was, was much more deeply imbued back then. A little bit on this in case you've read some of this stuff. So at the time, you know, why would they do this? Why did the Coinage Act of 1792 define the dollar as a certain amount of grains of silver or gold? It was because this was what was called bimetallism, as the name suggests, meaning it's it's two standards. And notice that that was it exactly a 15 to one ratio? And the reason they picked that is because at that time, that was roughly the market exchange rate between gold and silver, right? That gold had about a 15 times more, you know, in terms of per weight market value in the global markets. So what Congress was trying to do, the rationale with this, is they were trying to um, make it convenient to have dollars of different sizes, or, or I should say money, denominated in dollars of certain sizes based on, you know, the, the, the transaction. So if you needed to buy something expensive, you could have a, a $20 gold coin, right? And that would be a large, but then in terms of getting change back and, you know, smaller purchases, you'd have smaller, like a $1 or a fractional, you know, a quarter, meaning one quarter of a dollar, right? That's why it's called a quarter uh, silver coin, right? And so that, that was the rationale. And the reason they get, again, they locked in the 15 to one is because at that time that was roughly- the correct ratios, they were trying to respect you know, the natural or the market relation. But then what happened, and this is where Gresham's Law comes into play, is once they had locked that in, and, and Mises talks about this a lot, he says that when governments tried to enact a bimetallism standard or a bimetallic standard, in practice, it would be an alternating monometallic standard, okay? And so I'll say that again, and then I'll explain what it means. So what Mises claimed was, governments historically when they tried to enact legislatively a bimetallic standard in practice it would be an alternating monometallic standard. And so what what happened is, you know, they could pick an exact exchange ratio in terms of saying our 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 sovereign money, you know, whether it's the German mark or the French franc or, you know, the US dollar, if it's defined both in terms of gold and silver and they, you know, they have to pick some kind of ratio between the two, in practice the market exchange rate is going to fluctuate. And so if it goes too far in one direction, then with this ratio necessarily, either gold or silver is overvalued and the other one is undervalued. And so everybody naturally, when they have to make a purchase, is going to spend the the thing that's overvalued, right? They want to get rid of the stuff that the law is making more valuable than it really is, as it were. And likewise, you're going to hoard you're not gonna spend the ones that the, the, is being arbitrarily penalized. Right? So for, for modern people, just to, to get a sense of what this means, just to th- put it in real terms, many of you probably know uh, in terms of US coinage, if you have like a quarter or a dime that was issued in, in 1950, there's actual silver in that. So if it's a quarter, the, the silver content of a US quarter that's, that was coined or minted in 1950 is worth much more than 25 cents. So you would be silly if you went to the store and the merchant says, oh, that'll be $1. 25." You wouldn't take out a dollar bill and then that quarter and pay for it. You could, but that would be silly, right? Because you would be giving up an object that was worth much more than 25 cents in terms of the silver content. You would use a different quarter that also has stamped on it 25 cents you know, legal tender, but doesn't have 25 cents worth of silver in it, right? So likewise, Back when the coins were genuine silver and gold, if something cost $10, you would, and you were going to use coins to pay for it, you would put down coins that the metal content was actually worth less than $10 if you were to melt them down and sell the metal, as opposed to coins that if you melted them, the metal content would be more than $10, right? So that's what I'm getting at. And so Gresham's Law, the, the way it's, it's distilled or summarized is to say bad money drives out good and that's that's what they're getting at that they're they're saying that the money that's being overvalued is the one that gets spent and is in circulation and everybody holds back and sits on the money that's being arbitrarily penalized in terms of the legal tender laws and so forth all right so that's what would happen so in the US it flipped like i say initially this really was the right ratio but then the ratio moved up to about 15 and a half to 1 you know the actual market ratio around the world and so that you know made the US sort of like on a de facto silver standard and then things moved the other way and so then you know so those one coins were all in circulation then it went the other way to more towards sixteen and the US changed the definitions more towards 16 to one and then it flipped the other way and so what they over um what they had been overvaluing and so then it flipped and the coins that were in circulation switched around. So the US ended up being on a de facto gold standard. And then um This led this gave rise to I'll I'll move on to the next slide here. I don't want to get bogged down too much in this, but just to connect some of the dots. For those of you familiar with U.S. hit monetary history, you may have heard of what's called the crime of 73. And that is when in 1873, the U.S. government began demonetizing or or continued the process of demonetizing silver. And they ended eventually what was called the free coinage of silver. So, again, the way this worked historically, you know, back in its heyday, is the government wasn't just creating the money. They were saying anybody who wants more dollars, you bring you know, bring the US mint a certain weight of gold and we will stamp them into gold coin, you know, official currency according to these ratios or silver. And so then they stopped doing that eventually with silver, and that later was, you know, retroactively when the silver interests, you know, realized what it, you know the, the problem they had called it the Crime of '73. So William Jennings Bryan, who was famously his Cross of Gold speech, you may be familiar with. So he was in favor in the late 1890s of resuming what's called the free coinage of silver, and what that meant was, hey, let's go back to the policy the way it used to be before the Crime of '73, when people could just bring. You know, actual silver and then get it stamped into, you know, U.S. currency, the silver coins that were legal tender and that were counted as real dollars. Whereas, you know, at that point you couldn't do that anymore. So just to think through the logic, so you may know that William Jennings Bryan was a populist. He was a friend of the, the indebted farmer and, a, you know, an opponent of the Wall Street fat cats. And so, how would that, the economics of how does that line up? Because if what was then what would happen is given the prevailing you know, exchange ratios they would have used at the time if they had resumed the so-called free coinage of silver, more people could have taken a weight of silver that was worth less than a dollar, taken it to the mint, stamped it into dollar coins. And so that would have allowed that, you know, it would have inflated the number of dollars, right? And so prices would have risen. And so if you're a farmer and it's hard for you to make your mortgage payments to the bank because you mortgaged your farm, this is a way to, you know, inflate the currency, And then, so that makes it easy, you know, raises agricultural prices, makes it easier for you to make the payments to the bank. And it tends to hurt the creditors if this is unexpected. Okay, so that's the way all this stuff interplays. But in case, like I say, you've heard phrases like that, like the free coinage of silver, that's the kind of thing they had in mind. Okay, so now completely different topic in this this book that I did for the Institute. Uh, Do the textbooks get it backwards? And so here, what I used as a springboard over the years, there have been a growing chorus of critics who have said, yeah, the way you go and learn money in banking and open market operations in a typical economics class, if anything, is exactly backwards. Okay? And then this line of criticism was actually crystallized recently. So this, is this thing that I've got a screenshot here, this money creation, the modern economy by these authors, this is a publication from the Bank of England. All right? So this isn't you know some crank website. This is a pretty serious institution that, and they summarized all of these alleged myths that you would find in the standard textbooks. So let me just spend some time on this slide. I tried just so you folks realize to like boil this down into, into PowerPoints that, but it was going to be too difficult. So I'll just verbally walk you through this stuff. So quick review, you know, how does, how would you learn it in a normal textbook? And so here, this is what like Rothbard would do, in um, you know the mystery of banking or just any any area where Rothbard goes through and explains this is how the fed and the banking system interact with each other in order to inflate the number of dollars but it's not just an Austrian exposition this is how you know standard textbook would teach this stuff 20 years ago regardless of whether you're Austrian or not so again the claim is going to be where I'll go in a second with this is this is the allegation is that this isn't how the real world works this is just what economics professors tell you so, very quickly to review, the standard story, again, that you would get in Rothbard, that you would get in a normal economics class 20 years ago, is that oh, the central bank, if they want to lower interest rates, what they do is they engage in open market operations. They go out into the, the financial markets, they buy some assets, let's say treasury securities. In so doing, the Fed, I'll just deal with the US example, the Fed, when it goes and buys more treasury bonds, let's say from a private dealer, the Fed effectively writes a check, you know, it buys a billion dollars worth of bonds. So the, the Fed effectively writes a check for a billion dollars, gives it to the seller, that seller goes and deposits it in the bank. Now that seller's bank account, let's say it's Bank of America, their account balance with the Fed goes up by a billion dollars. So at this stage in the analysis, the Fed's balance sheet, its assets have gone up by a billion dollars in at new treasuries, and Bank of America's reserve account with the Fed now is a billion dollars higher. And so in that transaction, the Fed just created out of thin air a billion new dollars in base money, right? Because it's not like there was a, a piggy bank somewhere that Powell had you know, stockpiled, and then that went down by a billion. When the Fed ever you know, since 1971, when the, the US dollar is not redeemable in anything, The Fed can just do whatever it wants, right? There's no constraint on how much stuff it can buy. There's no legal constraint, okay? And so this is the way the story proceeds. And then, according to the standard orthodox economist exposition of how a central bank pushes down interest rates, the story says, okay, so now Bank of America has a billion dollars in new reserves. And let's say the reserve ratio is only 10%. So of that billion in reserves, Bank of America only needs to keep 100 million in the vault or on deposit with the Fed, and that 900 million is now excess reserves, and it can go lend that out to its customers. And so, how does the how does Bank of America induce 900 million dollars more in loan activity? Right. If before we were in equilibrium, now it wants to lend out 900 million dollars more. How is it going to do that? Well, it could either lower credit standards, you know, give to borrowers that before it would have rejected, or it can lower the interest rates asking. And so by lowering the interest rate, it, it, you, know, you move along the demand curve for loanable funds, and more people, people want to borrow a greater volume of funds. Okay? And so that's the way economists, like I say, 20 years ago, would have explained this is how the central bank, if it wants to, pushes down interest rates. It buys assets, creates more reserves. Banks then say, oh, we have excess reserves. Let's lend them out. we got to lower interest rates. And that's how the central bank pushes down interest rates. Going the other way, if inflation's getting too high, by which they mean price inflation, then the central bank gets nervous. They want to raise rates. What do they do? The mirror image of that, they sell assets off their balance sheet. The central bank does. So in in the US case, the Federal Reserve sells bonds. The people who buy the bonds from the Fed have to write checks. When that check clears with their bank, the bank's reserves with the Fed go down. Now that bank realizes, uh uh-oh, we're short on reserves because there's reserve requirements. That means we need to uh, shrink our outstanding loan portfolio. And so as people pay back loans, they don't roll it over as much or they call in outstanding loans. And so the total amount of credit contracts. And and by shrinking that, you know, the supply of reserves and supply of credit, it, it tends to raise interest rates. Okay, so that's, again, called open market operations. That's totally standard stuff. That's the orthodox story. So that's what the critics have been alleging for years. The economics professors get totally backwards. That they're saying, no, in practice, and so here, I'll just summarize some of the, this perspective. They'll say, in practice, that's not what happens if you go talk to an actual banker, like someone who's been in a meeting where banks, bankers are considering you know, our loan portfolio and what do we think? They say, nobody ever asks, hey, do we have excess reserves? that that's, that's not how bankers think in the real world. How they think is, is this a good loan? Like we've got these applicants for mortgages, you know, whether it's commercial or um, uh, reta- uh, residential properties. And does this look like a good loan or not? You know, these particular terms. And if so, let's go ahead and make that loan. And then yes, as an afterthought, if it turns out we're short, like legally, oh gee, we don't have enough reserves to satisfy our legal reserve requirements. Then we go out into the federal funds market as a bank and we just borrow it from where we need to. And, and so that's what the federal funds market is. And that's what the federal funds rate is, if you're familiar with that term. It's the interest rate in that market. So commercial banks borrow um, from and lend reserves to each other. And so a bank that you know has excess reserves can just lend it to another bank that has deficient reserves. And that's how they satisfy the reserve requirements vis-a-vis the Fed, for example. Okay. And so that's one of the things in this book or in this uh, report from the Bank of England that they're saying is, so notice that's, that's the, the opposite way. And they also say the central bank doesn't set interest rates. OK, or, or rather what they say is the central bank doesn't, set re, doesn't alter the, the quantity of reserves. Instead, they, use it, they, they target interest rates and that the, the commercial banks, through their activity, endogenously determine how many reserves are in the system. That, that's actually the way they put it. Okay, and so they say that's that's different from how the textbook says it's, oh, the central bank, if it wants to engage in expansionary policy, buys assets and floods the system with more reserves. And then the banks say, oh, more reserves. Let's go make more loans. And again, again, the the critics are saying, no, no, in reality, it's the opposite. If the banks want to make more loans, they do that first. And then because they made more loans, they go out and they find the reserves to sort of satisfy them legally. Okay, so you see how the cause and effect is totally flipped. So what I you know, how do I respond to that in the book? is I say, actually, both narratives are internally consistent. It just depends what you're holding fixed and how you're, you know, and imagining the the central bank is operating. So the commercial banks as a whole, they do they cannot create reserves. So to say, oh, if Bank of America has a bunch of good applicants for mortgages, you know, the real estate market is hot and they want to make more loans, and they go ahead and do that, and then as an afterthought, they scramble and borrow more reserves, well, that assumes there must be some bank out there that has reserves to lend to them. But if all the banks collectively are doing the same thing, they can't all borrow excess reserves from each other, right? If each bank is short, the, you know, the, the, the commercial banks do not have the legal ability to create more reserves. Only the central bank can do that. All right. So what is true, though, is if the central bank, if its policy is to set an interest rate, like to say we want the federal funds rate to be 5%, now let's say all of a sudden the real estate market starts booming and the commercial banks start making more loans. And because of that, now with the given amount of reserves that the the Fed controls are insufficient for all the banks to satisfy the reserve requirements because their loans are going up, and now the banks are trying to borrow from each other in the federal funds market, and that pushes up the Fed funds rate to 7%. Now the Fed looks at that and says, uh-oh, the actual federal funds rate is 7%. Our target was 5 If the Fed wants to push the actual Fed funds rate back down to the target, then they have to go buy assets and put more reserves in the system to push it back down. OK, so you see how it's really just holding you know deciding what are you assuming the central bank is is doing it's still true that if the federal reserve wants to lower interest rates it buys assets and floods the system with reserves everybody agrees with that it's just you know you could think of it that way or if you're thinking of it as no what the fed's doing is picking the interest rate it wants well yeah if that's the way the fed's operating then it is true that what the banks do the fed sort of passively adjusts the reserves to accommodate you know, the needs of business. Okay? So it's again, both narratives are internally consistent. And they're both useful ways of thinking about it. And just, but So just be aware that there's, it could go either way in terms of you know, this is how things work. So it's not that the critics, and the way they explain things here, shows the textbooks are wrong. It's just saying this is a different way of, of thinking about it. All right. Uh, let's look at the Fed's balance sheet here. So this is the first QE, this is QE2, this is QE3, and that's what happened from the coronavirus, all right? So you, you can see the huge expansion, and how much that dwarfs what was unprecedented you know, after the financial crisis. And you can also see it wasn't just a one-time increase, it's still going up monthly. And you can see like, even the, the, the rate, the, you know, the, the angle of that line is pretty steep right now. OK, so that just gives you some idea. And, you know, for those of you who are foreign, you might not this might not be so much on your radar. But what the Fed was doing back in that first one was just terrifying people because you can see how unprecedented that was at the time. You can see that, you know, the line was just going up gradually over time and then a huge spike at that time. That was an unbelievable increase. But you can see how that's now been dwarfed by what? the Federal Reserve did just since last March, right? So that's in terms of just the the quantitative shift. Beyond that, though, there was a qualitative shift in what the Federal Reserve has been doing. So this started aggressively back in the wake of the financial crisis, and then they just upped the ante um, with the pandemic. So what I mean is, it's not just that the Fed is buying a much higher volume of assets. It's the type of assets that the Fed is buying is vastly different, right? So I don't have a slide here, but if you go and get the, you know, the, the chapter in the, on the online version, I have some charts showing the composition of the Fed's balance sheet and how that's changed over time. But historically, before 2007, the Fed typically just bought US treasury bonds, right? And the idea of the Fed, for example, going and buying bonds issued by major companies or buying stocks for, on Wall Street, that would have been you know, a huge scandal because they would have said there's a huge invitation for corruption there. You don't want central bank officials based in the New York Fed going out and being able to effectively prop up stock prices of individual companies because, you know, what? You know, that's, that's such a huge invitation to corruption. And yet that's now where we are. The Fed right now, and sometimes they, it goes through like a broader financial vehicle that has these things packaged in it. But still, nonetheless, the Fed can now ultimately or indirectly own things like credit cards, student loans, um, car loans, all sorts of individual companies, bonds, um, ETFs that are broad based in those things. So all sorts of things that the Fed before would not be able to buy, now they can do it. And also, there's sort of an implicit admission that what they're doing, they know is of dubious legality, is because technically, the way they did this stuff, starting back in 2008, like let's say the fed wanted to buy some mortgage backed securities the fed didn't just go out and directly buy those assets because again the the statutory language authorizing the federal reserve and giving it the legal authority to to buy assets wouldn't allow that right it wasn't clear you could do that and so but the fed had broad powers to make loans right and so what they did is they created these llcs that were called maiden lane and that's because just like there's Wall Street, in terms of the geography of Manhattan, there's Wall Street, and then Maiden Lane is is right near there. And so they have like a Maiden Lane LLC that stands for Limited Liability Corporation. So they create this legal entity. And then the Fed loans money to the Maiden Lane LLC. And then the Maiden Lane LLC goes out and buys mortgage-backed securities. Right? So the Fed's like, we didn't buy mortgage-backed securities. What are we talking about? That would be illegal. We don't do that. OK, so that's partly what they did. And there, there's like a law review articles that I, you know, I cite in the thing where it's, it's not, you know, some libertarian with an axe to grind, just legal professors saying that this is arguably illegal what they're doing here. But at the time, because people were convinced the world was collapsing and that oh the feds here to save us, thank goodness that, you know, a lot of people didn't didn't raise, you know, raise objections to say, hey, I'm not sure that the fed can even legally do this. But I'm just saying that's technically what they did to help quash the dissenters and the people saying you just, you, you don't have the authority statutorily to do this stuff, all right? So that's partly what they did. Okay, there was a redefinition of M1. All right, so this, let me explain what happened and then I'll, I'll talk about this chart. So um, the Fed made a sort of obscure, what they did is they changed, there There was a certain regulation and the Fed Tweaked that such that if you had a savings account, so in in the U.S. technically there's distinction between checking and savings account, and historically there there was really a distinction there. A checking account was a demand deposit; it meant that was money you had immediately accessible to you. Whereas a savings account, as the name suggests, that was money that was more of a time deposit. That was supposed to be oh you know if you're a, a couple and you have your your accounts at the bank. The checking account is the stuff you put in so that when you go and buy your groceries every week, you pay the rent, what what have you, you you use your checking account. Whereas the savings account is, oh, we're putting money aside for that vacation next year, or we're putting money aside for the kid's college. And that's what you would put in the savings account. And so there was a distinction. The savings account typically paid a higher interest rate. And again, there were supposed to be limits on it. Once you put the money in the savings account, it was harder to get at because that was your savings, right? So that was the idea. But over time, the distinction became blurred, and it was real easy, especially, you know, with the rise of on, online banking and things where you could just go in, you know online to your account and just move money from your savings account and your checking account. And so th- this distinction kind of fell away. And But technically, um, there was a limit that you could only do it six times a month, I believe, up till last year. And then the Fed you just got rid of that requirement, too. And so then from that point forward, even savings account, you know, there, there was no there was nothing in practice to distinguish a savings account balance from a checking account balance. And so that's why in terms of these monetary aggregates, savings account balances before 2020 or before May of 2020 used to be part of M2, but not part of M1. But then because of this regulatory change, which went into effect in May of 2020, now there was no distinction between checking and savings accounts in that respect. They were just as liquid And so that's why they're saying now, okay, savings accounts now have to be included as part of M1. So this is the chart of M1. And so if you just looked at it in isolation, you'd see this huge jump, and then you would know that, oh, don't be freaked out about that. You know, Glenn Beck or somebody would say, but we insiders know that that's that's just because of a definitional change but it's kind of sneaky because M1, even under the old definition, really did spike at that point. So I, I don't know, Joe Salerno has an essay on this stuff where he gives some of the, what he thinks are the, the, you know, the, the ultimate reason, like, why are they doing this? What's the point of this? Um, he, so he doesn't stress this one. This is just my, I'm just throwing this out there. It's conceivable they partly did this because it, it, it masks what actually happened to M1, right? In other words, People seeing this huge jump are going to say, oh, well, that's right when the redefinition occurred and dismiss it as merely a redefinition. But I'm saying, no, M1, even under the old definition, really did jump a lot right in this time period, too. So the Fed really did, the banking system really did allow a huge expansion in M1, even according to the old definition. And the way to see that, which I've done in this chart, is as I put M2 in there, right? So that's this one. OK, so again, M2 was not affected by the definition change. All they did was they changed the grouping. So something that before was M1 or sorry, was in M2, but not in M1 now becomes part of M1. But M2, the definition has not changed at all. And you can see how much that jumped up uh, going into the, the, you know, the pandemic or the, the, the fear over the pandemic last year. OK, so that's one way of just explaining what, what happened in case this was on your radar. Also, let me mention, I won't dwell on it too long here, and I think I will have a few minutes for your questions at the end of this talk. But one of the chapters in this understanding money mechanics book is we deal with, Hey, wasn't there supposed to be hyperinflation? You know, after the rounds of QE, weren't a lot of these right-wing types, hard money types warning about the dollar collapsing Zimbabwe, wheelbarrows of cash, and that didn't happen. So, you know, what's the story. And so one of the uh, ostensible reasons for that, that, you know, people who were warning about QE and then looked like they had egg on their faces. One of the defenses they'll give is to say, "Well, it's because the money stayed bottled up in the financial sector, and it didn't get out into the hands of the public." And they give various reasons for why that might have been the case. And I'm, but I'm saying that that's strictly speaking, that's not correct, right? That I mean, there are reasons that the banks didn't lend as much as they otherwise might have, but M1 or M2, whatever one you're looking at, went up tremendously in 2020, as this chart shows. And even after, you know, going into 2008, 2009, 2010, they rose at much faster rates than they had before. Okay, so just just be careful if you're if you know, if you're trying to deal with a critic who says, oh, you guys are worrying about hyperinflation it didn't happen. Don't just say, oh, because the the public didn't get their hands on the money that no, according to standard definitions, the supply of money in the hands of the public did go way up um, after the financial crisis. And then certainly after this, it's just. I would, you know retroactive that the demand to hold money went up even more or went up almost as much and that's why you didn't see prices explode because you know looking at that you might have thought gasoline should be twenty dollars a gallon right now so gasoline did go up a lot in the last 12 months you know and measured in us dollars but not that much and so i'm saying that the public did shift its demand like they wanted to hold more actual cash and that makes sense right this pandemic hits everybody's you know doesn't know what's going to happen there's a lockdown in addition to hoarding toilet paper and paper towels, what else would you want? U.S. dollars, that's a good thing, right? I don't mean that you would use it instead of toilet paper, but you know what I'm saying, right? So maybe you should, I don't know, but uh, you get what I'm saying? So it, that does make sense, and so you could see how, you know, the authorities would have passively accommodated that if you want to use real antiseptic language the way, you know, some people who think everything works fine, that's how they would describe it, but regardless of your interpretation, I'm just saying make sure you know the facts that M1, M2 did explode over the last 12 months. And you can see they continue to grow rapidly. Okay, another uh, change that alarms some people that happened just recently is last year, the Fed got rid of reserve requirements. So in this chart, you can see required reserves going back several years, and it went up. So this is financial crisis in 2008. And so why did the required reserves they go all the way up and then they tr- fall off a cliff, right? So that line there, that vertical line is not just the edge of the graph, that's showing required reserves going back down to zero, right? That's what that is. All right, and so and so that happened last so it's I tell other people the other economists and they they don't think it's a big deal, but I think this is funny that last year the way they announced this, it was a Sunday, it was in March. So if you think back you know, it was early March when more and more people started to say, hey, you know, there's this thing from China and it's coming around. And, and the other people said, like, oh, that's racist. Don't talk like that. And then <laughs> all of a sudden it flipped to, yo, my gosh, this is, you know, why is more and ignoring this stuff? He's a monster. And the Fed on a Sunday evening had an emergency, you know, meeting. And they announced various measures about how we're going to deal with this, you know, emerging pandemic. And they had a press release. And at the bottom of the, you know, the, the standard like FOMC notes or something, and at the bottom, there was this paragraph that said, um, in addition to the above measures, the Federal Reserve also took other steps to bolster liquidity, and did it, including changes to reserve requirements, and then listed some other things. And it was just a throwaway line. And it said, for more information, see the Fed's website. And there was like a, a footnote, or, or sorry, a hyperlink. But if you clicked that, it didn't take you to further explanation about, well, yeah, what are these other measures to bolster liquidity of which you speak? It just went back to, you know, federalreserve.gov. Okay, so that was kind of a dead end. But if then if you went to, like, press releases, that section, if you knew where to look, then there was another press release or addendum given to the, you know, the thing that had said, mentioned that as a throwaway line, even though you, it wasn't linked. And then if you looked at that, it listed, like, five things, and the very last one said, oh, yeah, starting next month, reserve requirements are 0%. All right, and so I, that's, to me, that seemed weird, but no one else cared, but anyway... So that's the way they actually announced this. And so historically in the US, reserve requirements were roughly 10%, all right, it, 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 give or take. And so what this is saying is now no, there's no reserve requirements. So to be clear, this wasn't binding at the time, the way economists use that term, right? So there was there were excess reserves in the banking system as a whole, right? Because the Fed had bought so many assets starting in 2000, late 2008 and banks hadn't made proportionally as many loans, so there was all sorts of excess reserves so banks already were fully satisfied so whether reserve requirements are ten percent or zero, but that didn't affect it's not that you know that this changed that, that, it's not that by doing this now banks could do something they weren't allowed to do the week before because banks were already had were awash in reserves but I think partly why they did this was to open the door you know down the road when things go back more towards normal now they've gotten rid of the reserve requirements so that's just but whether that's why they did it or not I'm just pointing out that's what they did. Okay, let me end with this particular slide and then maybe I'll have time for one question. This is something I covered in the in the chapter and I think it's useful because especially in the wake of the financial crisis, you know there's things like the Dodd-Frank Act, there's what's called the Basel Accords that you may have heard of, and one of the things that's often stressed is oh, they're beefing up capital requirements for banks. And I think sometimes, you know, if you're a student, especially, you don't understand what's, what's that? Is that a reserve requirement? What does that mean? So I just have this simple example. I'll go through it real fast here. And if you want to see more of the details, you can, you know, click on the and read through the chapters. But here's a hypothetical bank balance sheet. On the left-hand side, it shows the assets of the bank. It's got $6 million in actual paper currency sitting in the vaults. $4 million is the bank's deposits with the Fed, right? So electronically, the Fed says, ah, yes, Acme Bank, you have $4 million in your account with us. And it's got $90 million in mortgages, right? So it has lent out $90 million and that money was spent, right? So the, all, what the bank is actually holding is the, you know, the IOU, like the, the legal claim on the people who, who owe the bank money over the next 30 years, let's say. And those are valued at $90 million, right? So there's $100 million in assets the bank holds. In terms of its liabilities, it 's got ninety five million dollars in customer checking account balances, right so of all its Acme Bank's customers, they have checking accounts and if you add it up, how much collectively do those customers think they have in their checking account with Acme Bank, the number's 95 million so from acme 's perspective that's a liability. We owe these people 95 million. Notice they couldn't satisfy them They only have 10 million you know they only have six million in the actual vault and they could get four million like that from the Fed if they needed to but If all nine, you know, if if 95 million people want, or if they want to withdraw 95 million, Acme doesn't have it, right? So there's that issue. They're vulnerable to a bank run. I'm just pointing that out incidentally. And then the other 5 million is, and that's it, right? And so in terms of to make the left and right-hand side balance, that means there's 5 million in in equity, right? So the people who, who own Acme Bank, the shareholders, they have 5 million in equity based on these numbers. Okay, so in terms of formal reserve requirements, if this were before the Fed phased them out back, if if Acme needed a 10% reserve requirement, the way you would compute that is you'd say, there's 95 million in checking account balances. So if Acme needs 10% of that, that's 9.5 million. Does Acme have 9.5 million in reserves? Yep, they've actually got 10 million, right? They got the 6 million in the the vault and the 4 million with the Fed counts, that's as good as money in the vault, legally speaking. So that's 10 million. So they actually have 500,000 in excess reserves. Right. So if some other bank was short and needed money, Acme could lend them 500000 and still be good with their own, you know, vis-a-vis their own reserve requirements. However, in terms of the Basel Accords that say you have to have at least 8% equity, meaning the the capital to total assets ratio with these numbers, no, they wouldn't be because they've only got $5 million in capital, meaning shareholder equity, like assets minus liabilities, over a denominator of 100 million in assets, right? So their capital ratio is only 5%. And since the Basel Accords insist on at least eight, this bank would be undercapitalized, okay? So you see how, so those are the distinctions. That's the difference between reserve requirements and capital requirements. So yeah, Acme in the grand scheme is okay in terms of customers showing up and wanting to take out some of their money. They've got, oh, we got you know 10%, percent we got more than 10, or we have, a, yeah, more than 10%. But in terms of if the market value of those mortgages goes down just a little bit, it could wipe out the capital of this bank, right? Because they only have a 5% capital ratio. And so Acme Bank could go bankrupt if the real estate market crashes, even though they're okay if an unusual amount of people want to withdraw their money because they have so much in reserves, right? So that's the distinction between those two things. All right, let me, I have time for one quick question. Yes. So how much of a CPI increase do you think would be required for the Fed to personally increase F once target? 7.23%. Um, he asked how much would CPI need to go up in order for the Fed to raise interest rates? To. Um, it, it would have to be, I mean, again, I don't know a number. It would have to be a lot, though. Let me just mention two other things real quick. So, the Fed has, and it, I didn't cover it here, but one of the other shifts they made last summer is they switched to um, average inflation targeting, meaning they're saying it's okay if the economy runs hot if it's making up for a past undershooting. Just on average, we want to hit our target. So that's why right now, even though inflation, even according to their numbers, is, is like five something percent, the headline number, and then even with the core, blah, 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 it's 3% or whatever, they're not tightening because they're saying no, no no we just wanted to say on average and so you know since we think we were undershooting now that's what we're going to do so to answer your question i think they they did that to give themselves rhetorical leeway that they can let the economy run hot and not be violating their own targets so i think it would take a pretty big cpi number for them to then say oh yeah we better start tightening okay thanks everybody